the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our visit. California Congressman Tom McClintock with us, and he's taken some time out of his duties in Washington, D.C. to join us for some insights on the current disaster here in California. As we indicated before the break so far, uh, indications are the car fire 90% contained. It's consumed over 200 and 29,000 acres. The Mendocino Complex fire, the largest in modern history, almost 400,000 acres. All told, the California fire season, which has two months yet to go in the cycle, has seen the loss of more than 1,171 square miles. Congressman Clintock, just before the break, you were talking about sort of this historical, the cyclical nature of forests, that they will grow, they will then become susceptible eventually over years to disease, and then, of course, they will face destruction through wildfire, and then the cycle repeats itself. And historically, this is the way that nature has sort of handled um, the management, so to speak, of the forest. It was decided, though, uh, well over 40 years ago that we couldn't allow nature to uh, simply take its course or couldn't engage in in actively managing the forest, but rather allow nature to take its course, denying one clear fact, and that is that more than a century and a half ago, when nature was allowed to, so to so, quote-unquote, run free, didn't matter. Nobody inhabited this part of the West, so there was no loss of life. There was no property destruction. But today, of course, all of that has changed. So sadly, it seems as if we are using policies that better suit California of 150 or 200 years ago than a modern state that has, well, let's face it, we love California largely because of the splendor of this state, and a lot of that's tied into our forests. So it, it seems as if we're, we're really living a century and a half ago. Well, the, the, the question is, uh, do we want to maintain our, healthy, our forests in a healthy, resilient condition so that every generation can enjoy them? That's why we formed the U.S. Forest Service. Shortly after the Forest Service was formed in 1897, they had what was called the Big Burn. Uh, this was, uh, again, the, the ultimate statement of nature's way of managing overcrowding. You mentioned that 400,000 acres has been burned in the uh, Mendocino Complex fire, the biggest in California. In 1910, uh, we lost 4 million acres in a f- single forest fire of, uh, because the forests were not properly managed. The U.S. Forest Service went in and properly managed those forests. We carried out the excess timber before it could burn. We had healthy forests. Uh, and, um, and that continued until the 1970s when the uh, environmental left uh, took over, uh, made it all but impossible to actively manage our forests. And now we're back to that natural cycle of um, uh, dense overcrowding, uh, uh, timber die-offs, catastrophic wildfire, and then a hundred years uh, before the forests come back. I mean, if you, the, the the difference in a in, in a recovering forest is is remarkable by itself. Uh, I was just up at the uh, King Fire, which is the fire that almost destroyed the towns of Forest Hill and Georgetown about five years ago. Um, 
uh, it affected both private and public lands. The difference is where it hit privately managed lands that were well-maintained, the fire began to break up, slow down, and they could put it out, but there just wasn't enough out there. You go back five years later and take a look at the private lands. All the dead trees had been removed. They were salvaged while they still had commercial value. Those profits were put back into replanting the land. Uh, they've been able to suppress the brush because they don't have to go through a multi-million-dollar environmental review to do so. And the result is you have young uh, saplings now growing, uh, and within a few years it will be a young, healthy forest again. On the public lands that are subject to all of these environmental restrictions, uh, it's simply abandoned. The dead trees are still standing, although they're now starting to topple over. Uh, instead of new trees growing, you have about eight, five to eight feet of, uh, of uh, scrub brush, mainly manzanita. Those dead trees are now falling on top of that five to eight feet of scrub brush, and you now have a perfect fire stack for a second-generation fire. Uh, when I was visiting the command center for the Ferguson fire at uh, Yosemite uh, last month, um, uh, we again saw that contrast with the rim fire footprint from five years ago. We also saw other uh, lands uh, that had, uh, on the public side, uh, that had been consigned to benign neglect after a fire about 15 years ago. There are no new trees there. It is all scrub brush. Uh, and that's the choice we have to make. Do we want to actively manage our forests for the enjoyment of succeeding generations and uh, for the prosperity of our communities, uh, or do we want to simply abandon them? The There's... environmental left has been arguing and has gotten their way for 40 years. We simply need to abandon them and let Mother Nature take care of it. The result of that policy is what we're now living through today. If you've just joined our conversation, we're visiting with Congressman Tom McClintock talking about the recent California fires and this crazy policy that essentially says protect the forest by doing nothing. And, of course, we've seen the tragic results of all of that. I had Jonathan Cox, who was with Cal Fire on the program last week, and he was commenting in relationship to dealing with some of these fires, how that firefighters are going in and engaging in so-called controlled burns to clear out the dry underbrush. And I posed the question to him. I said, well, if you do that in order to prevent a fire from getting a stronghold and, and continuing on, why don't you do it actively before it's an entire forest on fire? Engage in controlled burn so that you essentially rob the fire of the kindling that it needs to get started in the first place. And he told me point blank that they weren't allowed to do that in advance of a major fire, which says to me, Congressman McClintock, that there's a major disconnection here in terms of our values, that we're not allowed to engage in controlled fires because we're, quote-unquote, protecting the wildlife, and yet the result of that is when a fire does take hold, it destroys everything anyway, and so it seems as if we're putting the value of wildlife over the value of human life. Well, I was at the Donnell Fire Command Center uh, a couple of weeks ago. That's still burning in Tuolumne County. It was burning into a wilderness area we haven't been able to log in 50 years. Uh, and you had uh, uh, dense tree density of over 300 trees per acre. A normal acre will support between 80 and 100 trees, uh, depending upon the topography. They've got 300 trees per acre in the uh, in the wilderness where they're fighting it. Um, you know, uh, when I was at the uh, Detweiler Fire, uh, which caused the evacuation of Mariposa last year, 
uh, the uh, firefighters there were bitterly complaining. They said, look, we know the condition of the forest, we know the topography, we know it's going to burn, and we know where it's going to burn. We have been trying for several years now to get the permit so that we could cut fire breaks before a fire breaks out so that when it did, we could contain it. They denied us permission to do any of that, so now we've got to do our the best we can as this fire is raging toward Mariposa. I mean, they, they were enormously frustrated. At the King Fire, uh, the, the, the El Dorado Fire five years ago, um, uh, and it, it, that was the day that the fire absolutely exploded. They thought they were going to lose Forest Hill and Georgetown, and had the winds continued to blow in that direction, it would have gone right on into the uh, Tahoe Basin that has four times the timber density that land can support. And one of the firefighters, senior guys, comes up to me, tears in his eyes, and he says, Congressman, I can't even get to this fire on the ground. We used to have good timber roads. I could get equipment to the fire. He says, now all I can do is drop stuff from the air and pray to God the wind shifts. That's the frustration of the firefighters with these. When I was at the Rough Fire down in Fresno about uh, oh, three or four years ago now, I asked the firefighters here, you know, what message can I carry back to Congress in your name? And they said two words, treatment matters. Where we're able to properly treat an, uh, uh, the acreage, uh, uh, the forest breaks up, it slows down, and we can put it out, but there's so little of it left because the environmental regulations make it endlessly time-consuming and ultimately cost-prohibitive. Uh, at at uh, the Tahoe Summit this year, I was talking to uh, Dr. Graham Kent. He runs Alert Tahoe. Uh, they're the ones that put the early detection cameras into our forests. Uh, so important. If you can get on top of a fire as it breaks out, uh, you can keep it from getting out of control. Uh, but early detection is essential. He said the two greatest obstacles that he faces to citing early detection cameras in the Tahoe Basin are the National Environmental Policy Act, a federal law, and the California Environmental Quality Act, a state law. You know, the troubling thing, to put this in perspective, the historical five-year average is about 140,000 acres lost every year. That jumped significantly. In 2016, it increased to 225,000 acres. In 2017, it increased to 726,000 acres. And this year, of course, we're at well over a million acres and still counting. What do we need to do to get it through to Washington, D.C., that these policies that might work well in Minnesota or other parts of the country are killing the state of California? What can we do to stand with you, Congressman McClintock, to get these laws changed? Well, first of all, these, these laws don't work anywhere. Uh, uh, and the good news is people are starting to finally figure that out. Uh, I wrote uh, legislation a couple of years ago to exempt um, uh, forest thinning projects from the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, that requires uh, endless studies, millions and millions of dollars of studies. Uh, that's what's turned the uh, Forest Service from a revenue generator into a revenue consumer, is, is having to conduct all of these studies. We provided a categorical exclusion uh, for forest thinning projects from uh, uh, these uh, rigorous studies. Um, we were only able to get it applied to the Tahoe Basin in the Wind Act that was signed into law in 2016, but it has had a spectacular effect. The Forest Service there tells me it takes their environmental assessment from more than 800 pages down to 40 pages. Uh, the first um, forest thinning project uh, uh, that was uh, pursued under this new authority, they were able to get permitted in four months, which is still a ridiculously long time but it is a tiny fraction of the time it would take under normal circumstances. Uh, so it's working there. I think we can make a very strong case uh, that it needs to be applied across the country. 
We certainly appreciate your efforts on behalf of California to uh, address these issues and the time today in giving some insight to these critical issues. California Congressman Tom McClintock. Congressman, as always, thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Craig. You'd like to get more information, by the way, that uh, Tom is doing on behalf of the state of California. You can check out his website. He often posts to his website many of not only the white papers that tie into issues of this sort, but as well as his comments before Congress. Information on the web at mcclintock.house.gov. That's mcclintock.house.gov. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Lots of exciting things going on in the arena of science. Uh, Most recently, of course, the the big announcement of the successful landing of Curiosity um, on the planet of Mars and the amazing photographs it has begun to send back. And no doubt this is going to do much in terms of adding to our understanding of planets and the cosmos and so forth. Uh, More recently, uh, interesting confirmation of uh, Peter Higgs' so-called God particle he first come up with the concept back in 1964, and uh, recently our friends up at Cal Berkeley have uh, given some impetus to the idea that such a thing exists. So much going on in this arena, and as much as some Christians kind of shy away from the notion of uh, science with the feeling that it kind of gets in the way of the truth of Scripture, my next guest, in fact, would suggest that there's much about science that confirms what we read in Scripture. Um his CV, if I if I detail it all here, we wouldn't have enough time on the program. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He is the president and founder of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author of books such as The Fingerprint of God, The Genesis Question, The Creator, and The Cosmos. His newest book, an interesting title, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, while the oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. And Dr. Hugh Ross, I'd like to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Hugh, first, if we can, just kind of your, your thoughts on some of these uh, more recent news developments. Of course, your background as an astrophysicist, I would imagine you're, you've got uh, great interest in following what's been going on, for example, with the recent landing of that Mars rover uh, just last week. Yes, and uh, I've been in uh, print since 1988 and predicting that the remains of life will be found on all solar system bodies for the simple reason that Earth has been so prolific with life for such a long period of time uh, that meteors have struck the Earth in sufficient abundance as to transport Earth soil to all solar system bodies. In fact, I got an opportunity to speak at NASA Houston a few years back where I said, we really need to target the Moon as opposed to Mars, because on the surface of Mars, we only have about 200 pounds of Earth's soil for every 100 square kilometers. But on the Moon, it's nearly 20,000 tons. And moreover, unlike Mars, the Moon has had very little geological activity over its history. And when it comes to planet Earth, the fossils of Earth's first life have been destroyed by Earth's geology. We don't have those fossils. All we have is an isotope signature of Earth's first life. But we can literally go to the Moon and recover the fossils of Earth's first life and establish who got it right on the origin of life, the Christians or the atheists. Amazing. So we, we, we find yeah, fur- further evidence of, of our own um, uh, lifespan here on Earth by going to other planets. Well, I mean, we can recover the fossils of Earth's first life by going to Mars, but uh, there's a good likelihood that they've been damaged beyond recognition. 
why I'm opting for the moon is that calculations already show us uh, that the fossils of Earth's first light arrived there uh, on low collision velocity uh, trajectories and therefore should be available in pristine form. And uh, the Christian model predicts that those fossils will be equally complex to the simplest life on planet Earth today. The atheists predict it would be orders of magnitude simpler. They also predict one species only, whereas the Christian model would predict that we should see a suite of species uh, with different uh, biochemical uh, metabolic uh, structures set up. We can literally go to the moon and prove who got it right. I mean, you can do the same thing on Mars, but frankly, I don't think instruments like Curiosity have the technical capability to really do the job. We'd have to send something much more sophisticated, whereas going to the moon, it'd be quite easy uh, to recover those fossils and bring them back to Earth for detailed analysis. And that analysis, then, as you're suggesting, Dr. Ross, has the capability, has the capacity of being able to differentiate between what they might would see as... Uh, particles that relate back to Earth as opposed to particles that are natural to the moon? Well, that's it. I mean, uh, you've got many in NASA saying that life may have originated indigenously on Mars. If that's the case, we expect to see a different signature uh, in those uh, fossils and um, molecular structure than we see in Earth life. And so it's relatively routine uh, to see whether the creationists or the evolutionists uh, got the origin of life model right by literally going to places like Mars and the Moon. But I'm saying it'd be a lot easier to do on the Moon than to do on Mars. I make reference to uh, the recent conversations coming out of um, the University of California at Berkeley that uh, have kind of underscored some of the research that was done clear back in the early 1960s by Peter Higgs regarding the so-called God particle. Can you comment, uh, Dr. Ross, on the the recent uh, information coming out of UC Berkeley on the same? Yes, I think there's a good likelihood that the Higgs boson has been discovered. Uh, To really uh, fine-tune our particle creation models, however, we're going to need a fairly accurate measure of the mass of the Higgs boson. Uh, That still needs to happen. Uh, But the Large Hadron Collider has the capability of of actually doing that. Let's wait a few more years, and, and then I think we can actually look forward to something much more exciting uh, than the mere discovery. Uh, But if you go to our reasons.org website, I wrote a series of uh, five articles on our feature called Today's New Reason to Believe, and it's about a year ago, uh, where I talked about two other particles, axions and sterile neutrinos, that in my opinion deserve the title the God Particles much more so than the Higgs boson. Uh, The discovery of those two particles, number one, can be done fairly cheaply. In fact, I suggest in the articles I wrote that astronomers probably have already discovered both particles. And with additional measurements, we could actually measure the characteristics of both sterile neutrinos and axions. And uh, that would really uh, bolster the Christian model for the creation of the universe and the creation of the particles. So I'm really anticipating uh, what astrophysics and particle physics in combination can really do uh, to build a much stronger case for a physical creation model. 
If you've just joined our conversation, we're visiting today with well-known astrophysicist, Christian apologist, and of course the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross. Information, by the way, as he mentioned on the website at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Now, we're going to come back after a brief time out and talk about Dr. Ross's latest book. We typically turn to the book of Genesis for answers considering the origins of man and things of this sort. But how about the notion of turning to one of the oldest books in the Bible to find today's answers for scientific questions? We'll get to that part of our discussion. Best-selling author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, here on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you, sir. We are back here, and we invite you to join us with thoughts and comments for astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, president and founder of Reasons to Believe. His new book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Now, I'm curious. We typically think of uh, Genesis as a great place to start in terms of finding answers related to uh, the origins of man, today's scientific questions, things of that sort. What led you, Dr. Ross, to begin exploring these questions and their ultimate answers inside the book of Job, a book that most of us, I think, generally just kind of regard as a book largely about suffering? Well, it is a book about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, but of all the books of the Bible, it contains the most content about creation and science. And I think for good reason, because there's internal evidence in the book of Job that it's the first book that was given to humanity of all the Bible's books. I mean, you see references uh, in the book of Job to a patriarchal sacrificial system, which means it must have predated the time of Moses. It's also written as an easily memorized uh, poem, and therefore it indicates that it was probably uh, given to humanity before Hebrew became a written language. You also notice the text is devoid of any references to nations, uh, merely just uh, towns and city-states. So given that it is the first book uh, given to humanity of all the Bible's books, we shouldn't at all be surprised that it lays the foundation for creation. And the other thing that caught my attention is just how much Moses leaves out about creation chronology uh, in Genesis uh, 1 through 11. And the stuff that he leaves out that's really crucial is material that's already described in the book of Job. So the fact that Moses uh, edited his material on creation and built on the foundation that's already in Job, I think, again, argues that we need to take a fresh look at the book of Job, not only as a book that deals with evil and suffering, uh, but also a book that lays the foundation uh, for creation theology. So the notion here, Doctor, if we take this all in proper and appropriate chronological order, while some might try to be dismissive, in a way, of the Genesis account because of the so-called gaps that are in there. For example, the big time gap from uh, creation of the universe to formation of Earth. And folks will kind of say, well, because of all of that, we don't understand what was going on. That must have been left out because there was no answer. In reality, what you're suggesting is it would have been repetitive because a lot of the gaps and, and items, the key items within the timeline, actually appear in an earlier writing, the book of Job. Exactly. I mean, Job is the one that addresses what God was doing between creating the universe and forming the earth. So there's no need for Moses to cover that again. Walk us through some of the highlights, if you would. I don't want to give away the entire punchline of the book, but in terms of, of some of the highlights of the revelations that you found 
working through the pages of the book of Job in, some of, in terms of some of the, the key uh, mile markers, so to speak, in creation? Well, I think what really got my attention is how much of the creation content in the book of Job deals with the second origin of life. I mean, you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are three separate origins of life. Uh, creation day one is when God creates life that's physical, purely physical in its form. But in creation day five, God creates the soulish animals, animals that are not only physical, but soulish, and they manifest mind, will, and emotions, and are capable of forming relationships, not only with one another, but with a higher species, namely us human beings. And last of all, God creates the one and only species, human beings, the descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, that can relate to God himself. And it was Job that said in the 12th chapter, look to these soulish animals, look to the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and they will teach you lessons about yourself and lessons about God. And so as you get into, say, chapters 37, 38, 39, all the way to 42, uh, what you notice is a theme that as you examine these birds and mammals, you can see how strongly they are motivated to relate to human beings and serve and please human beings. Well, we're designed the same way. We're also designed and highly motivated to serve a higher being, namely God himself, uh, and to serve and to please him. Uh, And likewise, when we look at these birds and mammals, we can see the degree to which human sin and abuse has crippled the ability of these birds and mammals to relate to us and serve and please us. Instead of coming to us, often they run away in fear because they know what we're going to do to them. Well, likewise, the sin within us has damaged our ability to come to God and to serve and please Him. So in many respects, these birds and mammals are placed by God here in this planet, not only to further our well-being and launching and sustaining civilization and serving and pleasing us, but also teaching us critical spiritual lessons about ourselves and about the problems we have in trying to relate to God. And the thing I've noticed as I've traveled around the world in my speaking ministry is you don't find atheists in the country. You find them in cities. And in cities, people are exposed to what man has created. But when you're out there in the countryside, you're exposed to what God has created. And therefore, I think that offers a good explanation why rural individuals Uh, believe in God, whereas many that live in cities, where they're cut off from contact with the birds and mammals, opt for agnosticism or atheism. I I frequently uh, pondered in places like the Yosemite Valley, for example, or or up in the beautiful mountains of Lake Tahoe, or other parts of of the splendor of uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, how it is that someone can look at this and come to the conclusion that uh, it was the... uh, the organization out of chaos resulting from the Big Bang uh, as a means of being dismissive of God's handiwork in all of this. Well, I've often taken scientists uh, out into the high Sierras, for example, get them out into a subalpine meadow and just say, you know, what do you think of this place? And they just say, the beauty is awesome. I said, how do you explain that awesome beauty? And it's a wonderful opportunity to introduce them to the God that created it all. Whereas when you're stuck in some office in a big city, uh, often uh, people don't have that kind of response. 
We lean quite heavily, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Ross, on the Genesis account for uh, how the world came to be. And certainly there, there are lots of details in there. And yet, from what you're suggesting, as you work through the creation miracles um, in Job 38, 37, 39, it seems as if we could more accurately put, perhaps, that we get more details about man's fall in Genesis and more details about the creation of the universe and specifically Earth and the preparation of same to sustain life in the book of Job? Is that a fair uh, conclusion? It is. I think both points are valid. I mean, uh, for example, when you go through the creation days in Genesis 1, it implies that God created the sun before he went through his activity the six days. Uh, you know, where, for example, it, it says in Genesis creation day one, let there be light. It doesn't say that God created the light or made the light. He uses the Hebrew verb hayah, let there be light. And in creation day four, the text says, let there be the great lights. Again, it doesn't say he created them or made them, let them be. And uh, what you notice on creation day four this is the first time that the atmosphere goes from being permanently overcast to at least occasionally transparent. And uh, what does verse 15 say? It says, so that the creatures would now have signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Bacteria and insects don't need to have that information, but the higher animals do. But when you go to Job 38, verses 8 and 9, it makes it really explicit that it's dark on the surface of the waters in the context of the events before creation day one, not because there was no sun or stars, but because God had blanketed the seas of the earth with cloud layers that prevented the light that came through. Mm. Uh, Job 38, 9, and 10 makes the point, or remember 8 and 9, uh, that God had blanketed the seas with clouds, and those blankets kept the seas dark. So where Genesis 1 implies that it's dark in the beginning because of the Earth's cloud layer, uh, notice that Job 38 is explicit in identifying the clouds as the cause of the darkness rather than the lack of the light of the sun, moon, and stars. And so that allows you to look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, in the beginning, Earth had an opaque atmosphere. Creation day 1, the atmosphere became translucent where light could pass through, but it's still overcast. And on creation day four, the atmosphere gets transformed again from being translucent to transparent. And that relieves Genesis 1 of the most major ridicule uh, of its accuracy uh, from scientific uh, skeptics. Part of the challenge here, perhaps, that we are trying to think of this in a very linear, a traditional linear fashion, uh, I would relate it to maybe you know, the assembly line uh, making automobiles, and that we would somehow believe that you have to begin most naturally and logically with the chassis, a frame, uh, the wheelbase, and then upon which you'll put the interior, you'll install the motor, you'll install the transmission. There, there's a very specific linear fashion in which all of this takes place to wind up with an automobile. It would be kind of foolhardy to suggest get the whole vehicle put together and then once having done so, install the interior. That would just seem to be contrary. Have we kind of tried to force God into a very linear fashion according to our own thinking? Well, the text does say that we are created in the image of God, so we shouldn't be surprised that the way we create and design things is similar to how God does. 
And, you know, God could do it all at once, or he could use a step-by-step method. And uh, Genesis 1, uh, by using the structure of the six creation days, tells us it's step-by-step. And likewise, Job 38 and 39 uh, establishes it step-by-step. And from a human perspective, we realize that's the most efficient way to create or design anything. And uh, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, God, being the kind of God, perfect God that he is, uh, uses the most efficient process available uh, to create and design. Uh, But one of the things I think we need to appreciate is that the Bible is a collection of 66 books, not just one book. And that uh, if you go through the 66 books of the Bible, you find over two dozen chapter length or longer uh, texts that deal with creation. And therefore, what we uh, searchers of truth need to do is actually examine all the creation texts in the Bible and inter- interpret them as consistently and literally as possible. But I would argue a great place to begin is the book of Job, and then build in Genesis 1 through 11, as well as uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 147 and 148, uh, the creation chapters in Isaiah, uh, and then go on into the texts in Romans and Revelation. And if you go on our website at reasons.org, we actually list every major creation text in the Bible. And we do that to encourage people to integrate consistently across all of God's revelation. If you've just joined our conversation today, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross with a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He, of course, is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. His latest book called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Uh, The oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit more about the creation miracles of Job 37, 38, and 39, and look, too, at the ten animals of Job. I'm Craig Roberts. Our conversation with astrophysicist and best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking this evening with best-selling author and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, How the Oldest Book in the Bible Answers Today's Scientific Questions. Dr. Ross, typically we see, in addition to uh, some of the naysayers that will look at the gaps in time in the Genesis account and say, here, there you go, because it's not all explained, therefore it can't be true. There are also some of the naysayers that will look at so-called bad designs in nature, maybe better put uh, faulty or what we would consider to be useless, like, for example, what exactly does the appendix do? Uh, And we'll look at this and say that this is a reason to believe that because it's not a perfect design, therefore it can't be God's design. What do you say to that? Well, you know, these uh, so-called crippled designs are a great way to test our different creation evolution beliefs. I mean, uh, you know, maybe we haven't looked hard enough for the purpose or the design of, say, the appendix. When I was a child, uh, medical scientists felt that the appendix was completely useless, and so if you ever had abdominal surgery, they would routinely remove the appendix because of their belief that it was a holdover from an evolutionary accident. Today we know that the appendix plays no role in human digestion, but it plays a critical role in the immune response system. So today medical doctors do not remove the appendix unless it's inflamed. 
and likewise useless organs uh, such as the adenoids and tonsils were once thought to play no, no purpose or role in the human body. And uh, now we recognize that they too play a role in the human immune response system. So sometimes the design is in a different area than what we would normally anticipate. And so here's the way you can put it to the test. Okay, if God's responsible for this, then we would expect that everything within the human body or everything within the cell uh, would have some purpose or function. And maybe we don't know what it is right now, but let's uh, continue to search. And if we find increasing evidence for design and function as we learn more and more, uh, about uh, different organisms' morphology and uh, their biomolecular structure, then that would be evidence that God was responsible for that. But if we find as we learn more and more, and we're finding more and more junk and more and more crippled designs, then that would be evidence that, uh, that hey, it's some kind of natural evolutionary explanation. Now, there's one important caveat. We would expect that there would be a small amount of... Um, uh, quote, uh, useless function uh, in response to how long an organism has been on the face of the earth. Because after all, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay. And so that law of decay will bring about some crippling of the divine designs. But in the case of the human species, we've been here for such an incredibly brief period of time that we would expect very little accumulation of, quote, junk as a result of the second law of thermodynamics. So perhaps less emphasis on uh, the evolution of man and a little bit more patience and more focus on the evolution of our understanding is a better way to approach some of this. Well, we would expect that a lot of the desire would be hidden from view because we haven't looked. That's the principle you see in both Job and the creation texts and Psalms, namely that the more we examine the record of nature, the more we'll discover the handiwork of God. And so medical science is a great example of how that is exactly played out. Part of this uh, discovery process, you spend some time, uh, some fair amount of time inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, to the lessons of the animals, the so-called ten animals of Job. Uh, in our time that remains, Doctor, spend a moment and kind of shed some light on that for us. Well, that's something that aroused my curiosity when I first began to examine the Book of Job, is why do we see this list of ten specific bird and mammal species in Job 38 and 39? You know, it's kind of like a top ten list. And so as I began to study the animals that are mentioned in the text, I realized every one of them played a crucial role in launching human civilization. And that uh, those people groups that lacked access to those animals were never able to get themselves out of the Stone Age culture. Uh, but those cultural groups that had access to those animals were not only able to launch civilization, but to advance it significantly. And I think in the 21st century, we often think, hey, we did it all. But the truth is, we would have gotten nowhere if God hadn't given us these specific bird and mammal species, and if we uh, hadn't really taken the time to tame them and begin to, to use them. Uh, not only to launch our civilization, but also gain some measure of peace and enjoyment from our relationships with it. And I think what's really phenomenal, too, is you look at creatures, uh, you know, like the ostrich uh, or the goat uh, or the donkey or the horse, uh, what we're realizing is they not only fulfilled a critical role in launching human civilization, 
they're fulfilling a completely different role in assisting humanity towards the end of civilization when we have global high-tech technology. Uh, So goats, for example, are serving a very different purpose today than they did at the beginning of civilization. And the fact that these creatures have multiple uh, ways of serving and pleasing humanity uh, to deal with humanity in different cultural contexts, that is, to me, a clear piece of evidence for the fingerprint of God in designing these creatures for our specific benefit. Final word, you spend some time on a key point. We began our conversation with curiosity on the topic of why pick the book of Job, since it uh, in large part is regarded as many as almost singularly a book about suffering, to be sure that it is. But at the end, you also make an interesting conclusion inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the book of Job, and that is how the book overall points to man's greatest need. Elaborate on that point. Well, uh, what God does is he talks about these animals that he gave to serve and please us and makes the point that we humans have been able to tame every one of them. And he mentions the Leviathan and the Behemoth as the two most difficult to tame of all the bird and mammal species and higher reptiles that God gave us. But he says there's one species you're not able to tame, and that is a proud human heart. And God steps in and says, only I can bring humility to a proud human being. You can't do it. And makes the point that we all struggle with pride, and without God's help, we're not going to overcome that pride. And just like these animals need to come to us, we need to go to God and get the humility we need in order to form a relationship with Him and successful relationships with one another. So what I love about the book of Job, the last few chapters close with a clear gospel message of how we can develop a successful relationship with our Creator. And if you look at Job's comments, he actually lays out from the evidence of nature all the critical points uh, for salvation, concluding in verse nine, in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him on the last day uh, with my own eyes and my own flesh. Why? Because Job recognized his need for a Savior and a Redeemer, and it committed his life to that uh, divine Redeemer. Speaking is deeper toward the answers that we seek in the creation of man, a look at today's scientific questions answered inside the book of Job, the new book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, newly published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the entire Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our guest, its author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, as always, delight to have you on the program. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. 
Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com.